Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week we're talking about the third opera in Wagner's Ring Cycle. This is Siegfried, which debuted at Bayreuth in 1876, Eric. Right. Bayreuth, the house that Wagner built to showcase his works. We're now at number three in the four of the cycle. And this follows on from Die Valkyra. Right, because as we recall, uh, in the third act of Die Valkyra, Sieglinde uh, was hurried off and sent to the forest in the east. By Brunhilde. By Brunhilde, where she was to give birth to the child that she was carrying, that she had by Sigmund. And uh, so now we meet that child grown up. He's, he's a young teenager, and his name is Siegfried. And Sieglinde, uh, sadly, died in childbirth, so she's long gone. And Siegfried has been raised by none other than Mima, whom we met all the way back in Das Rheingold. He's one of the Nibelungs. He's the brother of Alberich. And Mima has raised Siegfried in this forest? Yes. Siegfried is a sort of nature boy. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He's, as you said, he's young, he's athletic, he has lived among the, the flora and fauna of the forest, and the only person that he has had any contact with is Mima. Right. Nature Boy's a good way to put it. He's been communing with the bears and the animals, and that's really all the companionship that he's had. I mean, there are some that, that maintain that Siegfried is kind of thick <laughs> due to all that inbreeding going on in that family. Um, if he does come across that way, I think it's the the fault of the director and perhaps the tenor playing him because he's not really. He's just innocent. He's, he's naive. He's very, very naive. Because he hasn't had the experiences. He hasn't had the uh, exposure to the real world. Deliberately. Mima has kept him from having exposure. Big question. Why? <laughs> well, you should ask. <laughs> Mima has a plan. Mima has an agenda here. Mima wants to raise this young hero, because he knows exactly who this is. He wants to raise this young hero, and uh, he wants him then to fight for him and kill Fafner in his dragon form so that Mima can then, in turn, drug Siegfried and kill him, and he gets all the gold for himself. Because Fafner, in the guise of the dragon, is one of the giants and he and his brother Fasolt argued about the ring. All the way back in Das Rheingold. Fafner kills Fasolt, has all that gold for himself. The Nibelung hoard. Including the ring mm -hmm. and the Tarnhelm. Which he uses. To change himself into the form of a dragon. Yes. And he is guarding that cache in this cave in the forest. As dragons are wont to do. <laughs> and Mima wants it for himself. Right. And so Siegfried is the, sort of the linchpin of his plot to get the Rheingold for himself. Yes. We're still working on the curse. In Das Rheingold, it was thrown on the gold by Alberich. Mima's brother. And we have to remember also that Mima has, you know, some legitimate claim to this this treasure because he's the one that Alberich forced to forge the ring. And he's the one that forged the Tarnhelm for Alberich. So apparently he's been, he's been thinking about that for a long time and thinks he's finally found a way to, you know, become a player in this game and, and get all that gold back. The problem is 
that Siegfried, and you, you talk about there is always the sense that Siegfried can come across as being not too smart. Yes. However, Siegfried realizes that something's not right, that Mima cannot really be his parent. Right. Because he doesn't look like him. Right. But he's not quite sure because he's never seen anybody else. But he understands. He's seen the animals in the forest. And he's seen his reflection in the stream. Well, he's seen the animals in the forest, and he's noticed that, you know, baby bears look like grown-up bears. And baby birds look like the grown-up birds that bore them. And he looks at the reflection of himself in the, in the water and looks at Mima and, and says, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Not only that, but he's actually repulsed by the sight of Mima. Right. He has this complete antipathy to Mima, despite the fact that Mima has raised him, etc. And he brings this up to Mima, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He intuits that there's something not right about Mima and there's something going on there that he doesn't trust, but he can't put his finger on it. He doesn't know what it is because there's no one around to, to tell him, yes, your, your, your instincts are, are right. The other issue is that Mima, as well as having Siegfried, also has the shards of Notung. Right, the sword, Zygmunt's Zygmunt sword. sword. The sword that Wotan, in the guise of Veilza, left for Zygmunt to, to find in his in time of need. And it was in the ash tree in, in Act Valkyra. One of Die Valkyr, mm -hmm. in, in, in Hunding's hut. And Zygmunt drew it forth. And then at the, at the end of Act Two of Die Valkyr, as we recall, Zygmunt and Hunding fought, and Wotan... Wotan steps, steps in and he shatters Notung with his spear so that Hunding can kill Zygmunt and Wotan can be at peace and not hear Fricka nagging at him <laughs> incessantly. <laughs> because Fricka being the, the goddess of marriage and love, she does not want to see Zygmunt break up Sieglinde's marriage to her husband. So that he can then take her uh, himself and marry his sister. Right. We won't go there again. No, no. <laughs> the problem is that Mima keeps repairing Notung and Siegfried keeps breaking, breaking it. it. <laughs> because of his strength. Yes. And Siegfried says, you need to fix this sword. Right. And as skilled as Mima is uh, as a blacksmith, he just can't quite do it because... I mean, let's face it, Siegfried is his, his divine parentage. His grandfather is Wotan, for heaven's sake. He is supernaturally strong. And so uh, Mima finally sets Siegfried to the task himself. Siegfried goes off. And then who shows up? The Wanderer. Right. Wotan, disguised in human earthly form. Right. And he says to Mima... Let's play a game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ask me three questions, and what's the wager? The wager is Mima's head. <laughs> Mima loses his head if, if he loses the game. It's interesting, you know, it's, it's one of these... It's these, a battle of wits. Yeah, and it's one of these epic tropes. I mean, you see this in, in the, the Hobbit, in The Lord of the Rings. You know, you have Bilbo and Gollum having the little, you know, trade of riddles. It's, it's a scene that we see often in, in these epic tales. And in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. For example. <laughs> what is your name? And what questions does Mima ask of Wotan? He asks him, essentially, about the three sort of levels of the universe. Yeah. Who is it that lives under the ground? And Wotan says, 
the Nibelung. Right. Then he says, who is it that lives on the earth? And he says, the giants. Who is it that lives above the earth in the skies? And he says, the gods. The gods. So then Wotan then poses his three questions to Mima. Now it's my turn to ask you. Exactly. So he asks him, what is the race that Wotan ill-treats but loves the most? And Mima says, the Veilsungen, the, the Valsungs, which, which were Sieglinde and Sigmund and, and now Siegfried. And then he asks, what is the name of the sword that Siegfried uh, is to wield? And Mima, of course, answers no to him. And then finally, Wotan asks Mima who will forge the sword, and Mima can't answer him. He has no idea. And Wotan says to him, well, it will be forged by one who does not know fear. And then he leaves Mima to the fate. He declines to take Mima's head and says, that is forfeit to whoever wields the sword and does not know fear. So Mima, the only thing that Mima can do is to, to forge a head no pun intended, <laughs> with his plan to get Siegfried to kill Fafner. Right. But he wants to, he wants to try to f teach Siegfried fear, because Siegfried literally doesn't know what fear is. He's never in his entire life experienced it. There's no idea. But Mima wants to teach him what it is because he doesn't want his head to be forfeit to Siegfried. Siegfried comes mm. back and, of course, his attempts to, to sort of instill fear or a sense of fear in Siegfried come to nothing. Right. And Siegfried then says, you know what? I'm going to try forging the sword myself. And I go off into the forest and find this Fafner and see if I can learn fear from him. <clears throat> so he forges the sword. Which is a huge scene. It's, it's oh, my gosh. Poor tenor. <laughs> it is brutally, brutally written uh, for the tenor, but it's thrilling when you can find a tenor who can who can really sing it well. This is Siegfried singing as he's forging the, the sword. The forging song, exactly. And you'll know it when you hear it because the anvil strikes are part of the uh, the score. And when he's finished, he tests the sword and he brings it down on the anvil. In the past, every time he's done that, it has shattered. Now the anvil is cleft in two. Dun dun. <laughs> we go into act two, and we are uh, outside the dragon's lair in the forest, and Alberich returns. Yes. What's he there for? He's keeping an eye on things because he's still trying to figure out how he can get back into play and get the ring back. He hasn't figured out how yet, but he's he's kind of watching as things unfold and looking for his opportunity to jump in and take it back. Wotan shows up, disguised as the Wanderer. Right. Alberich knows immediately who it is. Oh, yeah. And Wotan, playing his little games here, he's saying to Alberich, it's not Fafner that you want to worry about. It's your brother Mima. Right. They're basically just needling one another, you know. <laughs> They're just kind of jabbing at one another, uh, both of them sort of watching the situation. Alberic is trying to find a way in. He's trying to find a way to get the ring back. Wotan at this point, honestly, he's just on the sidelines watching. He sees that, you know, the, the, the twilight of the gods is coming. He that knows they, it's coming. They'll, they'll lose their power and their preeminence. Yeah. And he, he's sort of resigned himself to the fact that it's coming and there's not a blessed thing he can do about it. But the thing is, the irony is that he's telling here, Alberic, don't try and work against fate, which is precisely what That's he's trying to do. That's all he's ever done <laughs> up until that point. 
So, Wotan goes off. Alberic hides. Mima and Siegfried show up. Right. And Siegfried hears a bird song. This is the famous orchestral passage known as the Forest Murmurs. And if you're, if you're familiar with Wagner's Siegfried Idyll, that's where that material is coming from. That and, and the, uh, the end of the opera with Brunhilde, the duet with Brunhilde. But it's, it's all the sounds of the forest and the orchestra is just imitating all the bird song and the, and the sounds of the forest and just that sort of soothing murmur. And the frustration for Siegfried is that he has heard these sounds all his life, but he doesn't know what the animals are saying. Right. He picks a reed, puts it between his thumbs and blows, trying to reply to, to the birds. What, to the birds. Of course, it sounds they don't hideous. understand him. And it sounds hideous. <laughs> so he takes his horn yeah. and he blows his horn. Yeah. He says, I'm, I'm going to make the kind of music I know how to make. So he blows his horn and he, he plays his motif which we normally do here in the horns, and it's the motif that goes, and it's very brash, and it's very bold, and it's kind of all over the place. It's a little, you know, it sort of it reflects his, his almost ADHD <laughs> nature. It's a little skittish. It is. It's a little skittish, but it's, but it's heroic, and it's brassy, and it's loud, and it wakes up the dragon. <laughs> so Fafner comes out, Siegfried kills him. Yes. He runs him through with Notung. Right. And he goes into the cave and he comes out with the ring and the Tarnhelm. Yeah. And a drop of the dragon's blood has touched his skin and it sort of burned and he sort of licked it. This is Siegfried. As this is Siegfried, yes. As he runs him through. He right. The dragon's blood on his hand. Suddenly, having ingested the dragon's blood... He can understand the birds. She, and, and one in particular, there's a forest bird, he actually understands her song, you know, exactly what she's saying. But in addition to that, he now can not only hear what Mima is saying, but he can hear what Mima is thinking. <laughs> and so you have this almost comedic dichotomy between what Mima is saying to Siegfried, which are these, these ostensibly paternal... Um, He's, he's trying to, to calm him and, and offer him words of soothing, you know, and, oh, I'm going to make you this soup, and he's making nice-nice. But at the same time, Siegfried can hear what he's thinking, which are these horrible, nasty, pernicious, murderous thoughts. And suddenly, Siegfried, is, his fears are confirmed. This guy is out to kill me. This guy has nothing but ill intent toward me. And he kills him. Yes, he does. Kills him, and he throws his body into the back of the cave. Indeed. Alberic is still there. But we don't see him. But we, what we do hear is the forest bird. And, uh, and it's, the, it's the voice of a high light coloratura soprano sings the, the role of the forest bird when Siegfried is able to hear her and understand her. And the forest bird tells Siegfried, hey. <laughs> Guess what? Looking for something else to do? <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> There's this boat audacious babe on top of this rock with a fire around it and if you can get through the fire she's yours (laughs) exactly of course the thing to consider here is that Siegfried has never seen a woman uh uh so he's he's curious to see what that is because he was hoping that he would learn fear from Fafner and he didn't (laughs) he wasn't the least bit intimidated by the dragon so He's off to see what else he can discover and, and learn and 
and uh, get rid of his naivety. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> among other things. <laughs> so we come to Act Three. Yes, and Votan is there with Erda. Right, he summons Erda uh, from the earth. He summons her because he's asking her, "What can we do to avoid fate? How can we avoid?" The twilight of the gods. Still the fighting gods fate. He's one last ditch effort to try to avoid fate. And she tells him nothing doing. <laughs> That's right. And she sinks back into the earth and Siegfried arrives. Yes. And Wotan realizes that Siegfried is... His grandson. Right. Siegfried, however, has no idea who this old man is. And Wotan's plan was always that the person that would put the world to right was somebody who was outside of free of his influence of, right. exactly exactly and and he thinks that's Siegfried Siegfried then you know sees this old man barring his way and Siegfried is very brash and a little bit arrogant it has to be said <laughs> and the you know Wotan is is sort of looking for this youngster to show him some respect and he's not he's not getting any <laughs> Siegfried draws his sword yes he does and what does Wotan do well and it has to be said Wotan tells Siegfried, he shows him, shows him the spear and says, this is the spear that shattered that sword. And so Siegfried at that point knows that Wotan is responsible for the death of his father. And so they attack and Siegfried shatters Wotan's spear with Notung. And that's it for the gods basically, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Wotan... I mean, that symbolic shattering of the symbol of, of Wotan's power. This is the last we see of Wotan in the ring cycle. He basically, once Siegfried has has vanquished him, he heads back to Valhalla. And uh, we hear about him later on from one of the Valkyries who says that he's just he's just sitting in Valhalla, drawing everybody around him while waiting for the end. He's he's done. They're at the base of the mountain. Yes. And on top of the mountain is Brunhilde in her deep sleep, surrounded by the ring of fire. Exactly. Siegfried, of course, is the fearless hero. Just the fearless hero whom, you know, Brynhilda correctly foresaw would get through that fire to get to her. He sees this figure lying there at the top of the mountain. Right. And thinks it's a man. Right. Because he doesn't know about women. And she's all covered in armor. That's right. And he goes up there. Of course, he has the sword. He has all the credentials. So he is able to get through the ring of fire. Right. And here comes <laughs> here comes a moment that I always find frustrating because for as much as I you know as much as we laugh, you know, sometimes about the, the plots here, when I when you're in the opera house and the music is elevating this this material to, you know, sublime heights, the last thing you want to hear is somebody laughing, you know, in the middle of a very serious moment. But what happens here is <laughs> Siegfried removes her breastplate and goes, that's not a man, <laughs> which always draws laughs in the audience. It always does. And, you know, you just have to resign yourself. It's going to happen. <laughs> not only does he realize that this is not a man. Yeah, das ist kein Mann. <laughs> but he's also overcome by her beauty. And yeah. for the first time, he is feeling love. He's feeling passion. Yes. And he thinks, the apple not falling far from the tree, Well, this might be my mother. Because that's the only woman he's ever known has existed. And even though he didn't you know, know her because she died when she gave birth to him. <laughs> well, you know. 
It's a family trait, I guess. Pretty much. <laughs> but he kisses Brunhilde. Yes. And she, you know, she wakes up. To a, a glorious passage where she uh, she sings, Heil dir, Zona, hail to the sun. She hasn't seen the sun. She hasn't seen anything for, I guess, about 18 years, which is about the time, you know, that's taken Siegfried to grow up. And she greets the glorious hero that, that awakened her. And, you know, the orchestra surges to, and it's just, it's just amazing stuff. <laughs> and she says to Siegfried, I have loved you since before you were born. Right. And she's able to tell him about his parents. Right. But she's now feeling some, some conflicted feelings herself because if we remember from Die Valkyrie at the very end, the last time she was awake, Wotan kissed her on, on her eyelid and took away her divinity and her godhood and then immediately put her to sleep. So now... She is, for the first time, fully dealing with the loss of her powers, of her, of her godhood, of, of who she was. She's mortal. She's somebody completely different now, and she doesn't know what to do with that. You know, and here's this, this hero that's awakened her and is professing love for her, but she's not sure she's comfortable with the idea of being a mortal woman who, you know, submits to a man to... In order to marry him. And she's, <laughs> she sort of says, well, okay, uh, I, I love you and I'm, I'm grateful, but I'm not sure I'm ready to, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for the house with the picket fence here. <laughs> <laughs> so how does he convince her? Well, he basically wins her over by not giving up. <laughs> he admits to her that he's finally felt what he believes is fear because he was, he was afraid that he, you know, oh my gosh. I've gone through all of this, and now I'm going to lose her. I'm in love with this woman, but she's not going to commit to me. And, and he finally, finally gets what fear is. But basically, he wins a over by just pressing his case. And, and he's she, passionate she, about that's it. That's right. And she responds to that passion. She really does. And they end in this duet that's just uh, anything you can sing, I can sing louder. It's just, it's huge. you know. And she caps it off with a great big giant high note. And uh, they embrace one another and they're, they're just, ah, oh, let's just throw caution to the wind and throw ourselves into this love and come what may. And that's where it ends. So Siegfried, the third in the ring cycle. Uh-huh. What is it about this music drama that advances the story and evokes the whole spirit of the story so far? Well, we know we know from Wagner tipping us off in Die Walküre that, that Brunhilde is going to be the key to all this. Siegfried is the one that brings her back into play. Siegfried is the one that inspires her. And as we'll find out in the next, in the final installment in Goethe Dammerung, all kinds of machinations are going to occur that will bring us to the, to the, the resolution of this complicated and, and tangled web of a plot. But it's the love story of Siegfried and Brynhilde that's at the center of everything. And it's at the center of, of the resolution to, you know, Wotan's folly. And it's the resolution of the curse on the ring. And it's going to bring the world to a new world order. And we just don't know quite how yet. But we will find out. Richard Wagner's Siegfried. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.